you want to get out your message outline. From James 2, Wisdom for Prejudice. That's sort of an odd title. And uh, we'll explain as we go. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We need it. We need to be reminded of where wisdom comes from and why we need it. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for dealing with all the people in our lives. Thank you that James is a letter that shows unwise people like us how to be wise, how to walk, and how to live in wisdom. Thank you that James points us to the one who is himself, the wisdom from God. We need the wisdom he offers. Help us to understand your word and to develop the faith in Christ that James will speak into our hearts. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. We're in James 2 today, starting at verse 1. And it reads, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine standing in church on a typical Sunday morning. Before the service begins, and everybody's sort of saying hi and getting settled, and uh, you look towards the back, and you notice a famous athlete walk in with his wife and children. Uh, could be an NFL pro bowler, or perhaps uh, uh, she's an Olympic gold medalist. And you've seen this person on TV, manufacture last-second comebacks or win events on television to great acclaim. As far as you know, this is their first time visiting. And from afar, you watch as they quietly settle into some seats in the back. 
And you may not be one of his fans, but you've seen him on TV and you know there are some big time fans here in the church. How do we respond? Do we point out those special guests during the announcements? Do you seek their autograph after church? Do you wait by their car in the parking lot in hopes that you can get an informal meet and greet with them? Now that may sound odd or even extreme, but each is the actual experience of Christian celebrities who have attended a local church. The author says, my wife and I have either personally encountered or heard first-hand accounts of these types of uncomfortable interactions between churches and star athletes. Sadly, we found that many Christian players and wives feel hesitant, even afraid, to join a church due to the superficial preferential treatment they receive. As the body of Christ, we can do better. John Calvin is correct about our hearts being idol factories. The sin of idolatry is visible across our culture. It worships heroes from Captain America to Adele. And while there's nothing sinful about admiring the gifts and abilities and talents of another person made in God's image, famous or not, it's a sin to replace God with that person. Idolatry breeds favoritism. And favoritism has no place in the church of Christ or the hearts of his children. And James 2 condemns favoritism among God's people. Congregational distinctions were being made, catering to the rich while dismissing the poor. And while distinguishing individuals isn't inherently wrong, favoritism is. Favoritism distorts our view of the world and thereby deifies others, devalues the self, and dethrones God. Favoritism knows no tax bracket, profession, or people group. We're all susceptible to perpetrating this subtle sin, whether by treating high-status people differently than others or exploiting that treatment for personal benefit. This guy says, while at times I benefit from favoritism, more often favoritism makes it difficult for me to have genuine relationships. My work comes up often in conversations with brothers and sisters in my church. Sometimes as people ask about the NFL, my team or my position, the lack of interest in other subjects makes the question feel more like information extraction than honest fellowship. Being loved unconditionally is something that most professional athletes miss out on. Constant evaluation is unrelenting throughout the week from coaches, talk shows, and fans. Yes, my job is in the entertainment industry, but there comes a point when I can tell whether someone cares more about the well-being of my soul or their underperforming fantasy football team. I don't want my church to be an extension of the entertainment industry, but an extension of Christ's love and truth through people who, according to 2 Corinthians 5, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Church isn't supposed to be like the movie theater where we consume two hours of entertainment and walk out a critic. Church should be where we corporately approach God's throne to worship as the body of Christ and faithfully use our gifts to serve one another. Imagine a world where the most exciting, 
community-building and worship-inducing place to be on Sunday is the local church. How much could our societies, communities, and families benefit from congregations centered on worshiping Christ? Many walk into church each week with sinful wounds. God often chooses to heal through worship and fellowship. When we turn from favoritism, what do we turn to? Is there a manual on how to treat a pro athlete or a star or celebrity in our church? If there were, I imagine it wouldn't deviate much from the manual on how to treat anyone else. Ephesians 4 is helpful here. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When I think about our church, it gladdens me. I see a place where corrupting talk is sparse and kind-hearted forgiveness abounds. My prayer is every city would be fortified with a church winning the struggle against its own favoritism. As disciples, both poor and rich, young and old, are raised up for God's eternal kingdom. That was written about six weeks ago by Austin Carr, who plays for the New Orleans Saints. Or at least he did six weeks ago. Um, I don't tend to keep up with all the changes. And I think it's pretty remarkable that an NFL player would write something like that. It's probably not too common. But the problem that he's talking about, favoritism, or some versions say ESV partiality, some have personal bias. I think it's more technically translated as prejudicial favoritism. That's a common problem. It's been so common for so long that James wrote about it nearly 2,000 years ago. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to find out the Bible not only has something to say about this, but it has something hard and tough and demanding to say about it. So let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2, where we learn we're supposed to treat others with grace. To treat others with grace. says, verses 1 through 7, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If we had gone back to chapter 1, as Andy prayed earlier, go back to verse 19, James speaks about people who profess to be Christians and yet don't live as though they're Christians. He argues that your Christianity ought to permeate every area of your life, and yet there are Christians who profess a personal piety but don't display a public morality. And he takes the example at the end of chapter 1 of how we love, how we care for, how we show mercy to widows and orphans as an index of our spirituality. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian and yet you don't show practical, tangible love to those in need, to those who are vulnerable, to those who aren't in your family. It's easy for you to turn a blind eye towards them. Then that doesn't speak well for your profession of faith. Well, the beginning of chapter 1 was all about trials and temptations. 
and you wonder how in the world does hypocrisy fit in with trials. Well, in both cases, how you undergo trials, how you display love and social relationships, both reveal the truth of your profession of faith. Many people in the midst of trials show by their reaction to the trials that they've never really trusted in Christ. Other people, in the same way, by their social behavior, specifically their lack of Christian behavior and social relationships, show that they don't really know Christ. And so now we get to James chapter 2, and he gives us a negative example of social behavior, and he challenges us with a particular sin. And they're hard-hitting words. I mean, if you wanted to deny the faith, how would you do it? Would you renounce your church membership? Would you write a book criticizing the central truths of the Christian faith? Maybe join the local atheist club. Well, James tells us that one way you can deny the faith is try showing favoritism towards some, and personal bias against others. And James counts that as a fundamental denial of the gospel. Think about that. To show favoritism is a denial of the gospel. And if that's true, then we had better find out what he means by favoritism. In this passage, James teaches us that the Christian faith is utterly incompatible with favoritism. So let's look again at these verses. James is making it clear, Christian faith, incompatible with favoritism. And so in our life, our outreach, our witness, our words, and our church family, we have to demonstrate the principles of the gospel. And the spirit of partiality and favoritism goes against that. And James states this right in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is the theme verse for everything he's going to say all the way down through verse 13. And he uses several terms to uh, indicate what kind of behavior he's talking about. Partiality, it's often translated as favoritism. And as I said, technically it means prejudicial favoritism. If you're using an older version, it may say respecter of persons. Some folks prefer personal bias. I'm going to use all those terms somewhat interchangeably. For example, if you look down at verse 3, <coughs> excuse me, he speaks about paying special attention to some while looking down on others. Verse 4 talks about making distinctions. Verse 9, he speaks about showing partiality again. Verse 13, he even uses the language of showing no mercy towards that person. All of these are used to indicate the type of behavior that is a functional denial of the gospel. So we better ask, what, what does that mean? What is prejudicial favoritism? Well, let's start with what he doesn't mean. What James does not mean by prejudicial favoritism, he doesn't mean that it's wrong to make an appropriate distinction. For example, it would be totally wrong to condemn, say, an usher, a greeter. They meet an elderly person at the door. 
At the same time, a healthy 19-year-old uh, walks in. There's nothing wrong with the usher helping the older person to a convenient place to sit during the service. That would be a response of love, even though they're making a distinction. The distinction doesn't come out of personal bias or a shallow prejudice. It comes for a concern for that person. There's a need that the elderly person has that the younger person doesn't have. And so the response of love would be to make a distinction in that circumstance. So what does he mean by partiality, by prejudicial favoritism? Well, I think he's talking about a self-serving discrimination based on shallow externals. Look at what he says in verse 4. He asks, Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? That's pretty harsh. What evil thoughts? Well, here's how that self-serving discrimination based on shallow externals plays out. In the case of the rich man here, he arrives at the door. And everybody goes, boy, he could be a big giver in the congregation. No more budget troubles here. Come on, we've got a seat for you. Whereas when they see the poor person, the response is one of disdain. And I don't know if we want a person like that on the wrong side of the tracks in our fellowship. I don't want my children to play with her children. And we show disdain for that person. We look down on them. And so on the positive side, we look at the rich visitor from the standpoint of what can he do for me or for us? And on the negative side, we're disdaining this other person as unworthy of our attention because she's so different from us or perhaps in our view beneath us. <coughs> Friends, one way to test your grasp of God's mercy is to ask how you treat other sinners. How do you respond when you encounter people who are different from you? Different in ways that you don't like. Different in ways that make you uncomfortable. How do you respond? Well, usually, our naturally sinful response is favoritism. A self-serving discrimination based on shallow externals. But that's not to be the response of someone who truly knows God's mercy, one who knows that he or she is just a sinner saved by grace. Now James goes on to apply the principle of verse 1 here in these next few verses. He gives this common illustration of a... <coughs> excuse me. That's caught. Common illustration of a rich man and a poor man who show up at the same time. It's an illustration of petty favoritism and shallow prejudice where we favor one person over the other based on how they look. The reality is that's an illustration that could be applied in any generation. You could cross 2,000 years of church life and you could find that kind of petty favoritism in the church. You can go back to almost any time in church history. And in this case, James' illustration is how we might prefer someone who has wealth and influence over someone who's poor and obscure and untidy and not at all like us. He could have illustrated this uh, uh, 
prejudice and favoritism some other ways. He could have talked about race or color or language or where you're from or background or education or a whole host of things. But his point is this. We show petty favoritism when we allow externals to dictate our mistreatment of some and flattery of others. <coughs> James wants us to consider this behavior. In light of God's redemptive plan, look at what he says, verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James wants us to think about our treatment of other people. And notice he's specifically talking about our treatment of non-Christians here. This isn't just how we treat one another. These people are strangers to our church. They're visitors. They don't know where to sit. And James is talking about our attitude towards those who are outside the faith. And how is that attitude to be governed? By looking at God's redeeming plan. One of the glories of God's grace is that he chose us in spite of ourselves and in spite of our sin. He didn't look at us and say, you know, they have a lot to offer me. I think I'll save them. He looked at us, and in spite of ourselves, he drew us into his, his family. And James is saying, in the way that God drew you into his family, that should control how you look at people who are different from you, who make you uncomfortable, people you don't want to hang out with. As Christians, for us to reject the despised and downcast and overlooked and to receive certain persons because they're considered more worthy is a fundamental contradiction of grace. God is reminding us, I didn't look at your worth or else you'd be in hell. My grace is the controlling factor in my treatment of you and therefore as you treat others, my grace is your example. And that's a biblical theme you'll find over and over again throughout the scriptures. I can't do it justice. Originally, I had about six verses here to go look at, but I just picked one in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God goes out of his way to make sure the children of Israel don't misunderstand his doctrine of choosing them, of electing them. He says to them in Deuteronomy 7, I did not set my love on you or choose you, because you are more in number than any of the other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because I loved you and kept the oath which I swore to your forefathers. In other words, God is saying, the reason you're mine resides in me, not you. I didn't look at you and count you worthy. I looked at you and loved you just because I loved you. The only comparison I can come up with is if you're a parent and you have a newborn and you instantly love that baby, they haven't done anything yet. I mean, they were just born. But you just instantly fall in love with that baby. And God says, I loved you because I loved you. And therefore, I made you my own. He says, we're to treat people 
others the same way. And following God's example, we're not only to treat them with grace, but we also go one step farther and we're to treat them with mercy. Treat others with mercy, starting at verse 8. It says there, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's a pretty plain statement. If you do A, you're doing B. If you show partiality, you're committing sin. Not a lot of gray area there. Sorry, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he said, do not commit murder. Also said, do not, or, do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so here James goes on to say it's not just that faith is denied when we show uh, favoritism and shallow prejudice, but it's Jesus' royal law that's contradicted. It's incompatible with favoritism. If we're going to grow in grace, we have to seek to live out the whole law of God, not just the bits and pieces of it that we find to be particularly manageable. And James states the principle again in verse 8. He reminds us of Jesus' call to love your neighbor as yourself. That alone should settle it. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to show shallow prejudice based on externals. Because do you want to be treated that way? No. But partiality, says in verse 9, is a violation of that very command. Because Jesus' royal law is incompatible with partiality. And the violation of God's command at this point makes you a lawbreaker. Because the law is all of one piece. To break it in one uh, place is to break it everywhere. And James knows he's writing to people who care about the Bible who care about following the commands of God, who care about holiness, but they've got blind spots, as do we all. And they spend a lot of time working on holiness in area A, and they've left this huge gap over here in area B. And he says, look, you can spend all your time being holy over here and ignore God's law over there. You're still breaking the law. And so he challenges them in this area of favoritism. You know, if you get arrested for murder, you can't go into the court and they ask you if you're guilty or not guilty. And you can't, you know, raise your hand and say, yeah, I killed that guy, but I have never committed adultery. That's not going to help you. I mean, you can check with all the attorneys in the room, and there are several. I'm pretty sure they're going to say, that is not a good defense. That will not help. But that's sort of what James is saying, what we do. But I'm so good over here. And it just sort of devolves into sin management. And you can see it. I don't drink so much anymore. But now I'm sleeping around. Well, I've stopped sleeping around. But now I'm 
lying all the time. And we just trade sin for sin for sin for sin. And some people do it for years and years and years. And they think they're getting better and they're just managing sin. And James is saying that's all we're doing here with favoritism. It's just sin management. And he gives them this illustration in verses 11 and 12. If you refrain from adultery, that's good. But commit murder, that's bad. Doesn't matter. You're still a lawbreaker. You've been holy in one area, but you've broken the law in another. You can be pursuing godliness in one area, at the same time ignoring God's word in another. And that makes you a lawbreaker. And if we realize the demands of keeping the whole law, what is it going to do to us? It's going to drive us back to God for mercy. Because we know if we stand before God and we're judged by our keeping of the whole law, what's going to happen? We're going to be condemned. And so in verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty, what's that? The fact is, when you stand before the throne, you will not be judged according to your works. Because if you're judged according to your works, you'll be condemned. But you're judged according to Christ's works. And you're accepted according to Christ's works. And you're declared righteous according to Christ's works. And you're invited into the kingdom of heaven because of Christ's works. That's the law of liberty. And he says, now if you receive that mercy from God, if you receive that freedom from condemnation through the grace and mercy of God, how are you going to treat others? Isn't your heart going to overflow with mercy? Which begs the question, if it's not overflowing with mercy, is that an indication that you've never really known mercy? Shallow favoritism is sinning against the rule of Christ and breaking the whole law of God, and it's inviting strict judgment. And a vital faith will lead us to demonstrate mercy in accepting others, especially those who are different from us, especially those who make us uncomfortable, especially those who are less fortunate than we are. And I think that would dramatically transform our faith if we really began living this out. This is why Paul, addressing the church in Corinthians, if you could remember to uh, about a year ago in 1 Corinthians 1, said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So grace is the great leveler of how worthy we think we are. Because it shows that we're really not. And if you've been chosen by God, it's because in his eyes, you're foolish, weak, low, and despised. And yet immediately loved. And so for a Christian then to treat people based on their worthiness in our own eyes is a contradiction of God's mercy to us. 
It's just like the parable of the man who'd been forgiven much, who immediately went out and demanded the return on his investment from a man even poorer than he was. How do you show that kind of favoritism towards other people? How do you show that kind of uh, prejudice which is based on externals? I, I don't know. I know there's lots of ways to do that. Probably the biggest way we do that in this country is by the color of one's skin. Back in 2002, at the PCA General Assembly then, Henry Louis Smith, the longtime stated clerk of Southeast Alabama Presbytery. Personal friend, something of a mentor. He takes credit for every good thing I've done since I was in that presbytery. And anything I've done wasn't good was simply because I left that presbytery. Apparently, I have nothing to do with either side of that. But he introduced in 2002 a personal resolution which passed almost unanimously. It read like this. This 30th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America calls upon all those under its care to search their hearts before the triune God who is not a respecter of persons and to repent of and renounce any racism and or class consciousness. And further, this assembly encourages its local churches to make known that the doors to its worship and the arms of its fellowship are open warmly to all persons without regard to race, class, or national origin, and that it welcomes into its memberships all who come with a credible profession of faith and the great king and head of the church and savior of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that where your heart is? Your heart of mercy towards people who are different from you? James is saying this is a test of whether you've really tasted the mercy of God. How do you view those who are different from you? Or maybe even those you instinctively think are beneath you. Do you view them with mercy? Do you treat them with mercy? Do you welcome them in? That's James' challenge to us. Now, most of you would agree with that, but what's that really look like? You know, when it's rubber meet the road time, and there's somebody standing in front of you with real needs, what does impartiality really look like? Well, one of my new favorite songs is by the country artist Walker Hayes. I have a lot of favorite songs. But this one stunned me the first time I heard it on the radio. And then I heard an interview with the artist, and he said, this is a true story. And I wish I could sing it for you, but I'm not that good. So it's a story about a guy named Craig, and I'm going to play it here, and hopefully we'll pick it up through the mic, who's confronted by the poor man at the back of the church. A redeeming grace. It's like he understood my... I'm at Craig at a church called Redeeming Grace. It's like he understood my I don't want to be here face. I felt out of place and I smelled like beer, but he just shook my hand. Said, I'm glad you're here. He says, we'll all be just. We have lyrics somewhere for it. Ah, oh, there it is. Okay. I'll start again. I'm at Craig at a church. I want to be here face. I felt out of place, and I smelled like beer, but he just shook my hand, said, I'm glad you're here. He 
He says we'll all be judged, but he was never judgmental. And even though my songs don't belong and know him, he quote me my lyrics, slap me on the back. Said, man, you got a gift. How you write like that? Yeah, I know. He sounds cool, right? Not your typical kid from Sunday school, right? I still ain't figured out church yet. But Craig, I get Now he can't walk on water. I turn it Napa Valley red. But he just might be tight with a man that did. Now he's not the light of the world. But I wish that mine was bright as his. Yeah, he just might be tight with a man. especially love it because it's a true story about Walker Hayes. That really happened to him. And Craig wouldn't let him say thank you or do anything. So when he finally started to get famous, he wrote that song as a thank you. So let's finish where we started, back at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. How do we practice the grace and mercy of Christ in our relationships? It's really quite simple, and it's really quite hard. It means that you have to look at people through the eyes of Christ. If the visitor is a Christian, we can accept him because Christ lives in him. And if he's not a Christian, we can receive him because Christ died for him. It's Christ who's the link between us and others. And it's a link of love. The basis for relationships with others is the person and work 
of Jesus Christ. Any other basis is not going to work. Furthermore, God can use even the most unlikely person to bring glory to his name. He used Peter and Zacchaeus and John Mark. And he used that poor man whom we might reject. And he used Walker Hayes. And somewhere along the line, he used you. And at that time, somebody shook your hand and said, I'm glad you're here. And James would think that was very wise indeed. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our own sin and then look to our Savior. God, we confess that although we claim the name of Jesus, our hearts sometimes embrace an unmerciful spirit of shallow favoritism. Give us the wisdom that comes from above. Thank you that you've told us so many things in your word that if we apply them, it'll help us to receive your wisdom. It will help us to show the love of Christ in our relationships, even with those we don't know yet. Enable us to offer the welcoming embrace of one beggar, showing another beggar the one who's redeemed us and given us the bread of heaven and accepted us as family. Forgive us and work in us this summer as we go through James. Teach us how to request the wisdom that comes from above, to receive it, to reflect on it, and to put it into action so that we just might be tight with a man that did, a man that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.